Our guest this week was so desperate to come onto La My Praxis that she sounded like this. I'm so in, it's humiliating because here I am begging. So pick me, choose me, love me. Those three words. Lol, my praxis. But you know how some people like, if you have an argument that didn't go well in the day, you like rehearse the argument again in the shower, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I've been doing that except for with y'all, with this podcast. <laughs> because I'm low-key obsessed with it. And so I've been like in the shower being like, oh yeah. And then, you know, Louise and Alex will ask me this and then I'll just respond with this and it'll be so great and embarrassing. And now it's on the podcast that I've done that. So that's doubly, doubly good. Hello and welcome to Long My Praxis. Today we are joined by superfan Dr. Christine Slobogan. We like to point out when people come crawling to us to come onto the podcast. Uh, Christine is a Wellcome Trust ISSF postdoctoral researcher at Birkbeck, University of London. Her work focuses on the visual culture of plastic and reconstructive surgery during the Second World War, back when facial disfigurement was the height of medical banter. Ready yourselves for an onslaught of flaps, lulls and dangly bits. Welcome to the podcast, Christine. Thank you. Very exciting. Before Alex butchered your surname, you said that there might be some some chat there. Like so, um, <laughs> yeah. So Slobogan, weird surname, right? Um, and so I've gotten all manner of mispronunciation. Mi- can't even pronounce mispronunciation. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, misspellings, everything. Um, but there are some particularly good ones. One of my favorites is Slob Goblin. That- <laughs> <laughs> um, Very good. And then that became Snot Goblin for a while in high school. Uh, and then because my first name is Christy, um, it became oh, Crusty Snot Goblin. Crusty Snot Goblin. Um, um, and nice. I did this so guy- inventive. It's yeah, really yeah. good. And then I dated this guy named Elliot for a while. So we were crusty and smelly it. Um, and yeah, and then it, it, it really devolved like, you know, around 17, 18, and it became, um, slob on my knob again. <laughs> and then it became corn on the cob, which doesn't even make any sense, but except for from the slob on my knob, like corn on the cob, you know? Right. Yeah. Good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I do enjoy like nicknames and how they've kind of become increasingly far, further and further away from the original. And so I was on the cross country team. We won state. It was great. Um, but this is how bossy I am. I was the captain, but I was number eight on the team and only the top seven actually get to race. So I just somehow <laughs> snuck into the leadership role. Like, I'm going to be the king of this team and I'm not even a good runner. And anyway, as evidence of that. that sounds fucking ideal. Yeah, I know, right? I just got to... Mm-hmm. Yeah, basically. But, you know, I got to hold the trophy when we won state, when everybody else won state, basically. <laughs> oh, amazing. That is, that is, that is literally a manager, manager. Oh, my God, you're taking, look, you're claiming other people's achievements for your own. Did you get a raise? <laughs> anyway. It feels like oh. it's the kind of energy you get. We know when you see, like, rowing. And there's like, is it the cox that just tells them to row? Cox, so they, yeah. They yeah. don't do anything. They just literally tell them to stroke, right? Yeah. That's the, that's the same energy. Basically. Yeah, because Slobogan, Slobo became slow mo on the cross country team, so that was my nickname mm-hmm. there, which is 
really uh, encouraging when your coaches are yelling at you from the sideline, go slow-mo, go, as you're like trying to, <laughs> trying to like pass. I mean, it's better than go, crusty snot goblin, go. <laughs> I, uh, this is going to make no sense to people that don't know anything about fencing. But um, so <laughs> there's a whole thing where like when you get a hit, because re- it's really intense, like a lot of fencers scream to the point but like full-on like scream for it uh, i've seen videos of louise screaming yeah but because my well, my surname is creaking but i grew up in england and they always called it said creaching oh. which became screeching um but i was on the on the gb team at that so yeah nice screeching yes yeah, sports- screeching for a long time sports nicknames are you know they're mm-hmm. prevalent rampant yeah 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 but um yeah, so anyway it's so. still a bogan it's crusty snot goblin so i've got a really really important topical question for you before we ask you about the kazoo Mm -hmm. okay which is you know working in the field of medical humanities and the broader health humanities and humor um this morning we were treated to this shocking revelation that gwyneth paltrow ate bread in lockdown yes lowest point lowest point and had two alcoholic drinks a night oh, i didn't read that part i know right what as as a health historian medical humanities person what are your thoughts on this um i think that anyone who doesn't have two alcoholic drinks and a loaf of bread a night is severely endangering their health both mental and physical uh and we really should you know this gwyneth has really put this into uh the public yeah into the discourse really you know saying that she needs help really to be a healthier person to be less poopy um, your vagina eggs didn't save you from gluten cravings oh my god <laughs> well, the, you heard the vagina candle exploded right no that's yes. yeah yes how did i miss this one this one woman love- her house almost burned down because Gwyneth's vagina just popped off <laughs> <laughs> And that was before the bread. And that was before the bread. It's even <laughs> now. Jesus. Sorry. I mean, I, didn't, I don't um, understand the vagina candle, right? So is, is it exactly what I think? Does it look like a vagina or is it, it goes in? So it's a candle that goes into the vagina. No, it just smells like a vagina. It smells like a vagina. It's just a regular candle. That smells like badge. It's, it smells like Gwyneth Paltrow's perception of a vagina, which I don't think she actually knows what one is. So it's like a femme fresh candle. Actually, I'm gonna try and find the description of the vagina candle on Google. Oh my god! Guess how much the candle costs, everybody? Sixty pounds. Hundred pounds. Pretty close. Seventy-five dollars. And it's called "This Smells Like My Vagina," <laughs> and is described as. <clears throat> With a funny, gorgeous, sexy, and beautifully unexpected scent, this candle is made with geranium, citrusy bergamot, and cedar absolutes juxtaposed with damask rose, ambrette seed to put us in the mind of fantasy, seduction, and sophisticated warmth. And I've got to tell you right now that my vagina does not smell like geranium, citrusy bergamot, and cedar. Yeah, um, definitely a lot more iron content. Well, right now, anyway. (laughs) Heavy flow. And it seems to me You've lived your life like a vagina. Candle in the wind. Okay, so, um, as you know, we do a kazoo jungle. 
<laughs> Alex has purchased me a kazoo, so I have to do them. Um, so. <laughs> because she lost it and then didn't do it for like 10 episodes in a row and then kept making fun of me for the fact that I can't do the kazoo jingle very well. Yeah, but then you ripped it into me for not doing it well at all. But anyway. Exactly. Yeah, you can't get the soprano and the baritone. No, it doesn't work for me. Um, I have to say that is Barbie Girl by Aquamarine? Nope, just Aqua. Aqua. Aquamarine is the mermaid movie, right? Aqua is the band. Sure, yes. Yeah. That well-known mermaid Um, movie. So why is uh, Barbie Girl by Aqua fundamental, some would say, to your... uh, research yeah life in plastic it's fantastic um because i work on plastic surgery yeah excellent choice Mm -hmm. for a kazoo jingle yeah yeah louise had very bad options i have really bad options alex just swooped in at the last minute because i was going save the entire episode i was going through like medical dramas and because a lot of them have like sirens in their theme tunes they were really hard. So like, <laughs> I, I like to like ER and casualty and they're really hard to do on the kazoo and like Grey's Anatomy really hard to do on the kazoo. The only one that I got like almost there was like Animal Hospital, um, which is a banger, but also very UK. So you're just, you would have been absolutely lost. I cannot say that I would have, yeah. No, I cannot say that I would have done that. I don't think I, I would have been able to do it. No. As Simone de Beauvoir once said... You know, thinking about that song in relation to my research, I wish I had more cosmetic surgery to talk about. Like, Mm. you know, fun Barbie girl cosmetic plastic surgery. (laughs) Alas, it's mostly um, burns and uh, bullet wounds to the face and missing noses. There's there's less of that in the popular music genre. Um, yeah, unfortunately. Um, although there was a song written by facial injury patients oh. about their facial injuries, and I haven't heard a recording of it, but I've found. How would, you, how would it go? This sounds like a funded project waiting to happen. And now I don't remember any of the lyrics, so that's really helpful. Um, <laughs> Please feel free to find them, record how you think it should be said, and send it to us, and we will add it to the end yeah, of this episode. Yeah, but also <laughs> let's find a music person. If we don't, if we don't do that for in time for the episode, let's let's bully someone. Does anyone know any musicians? I could. I'm in a band, so I could get them to do it. <gasps> oh, cool! cool. Tell us about your band. Like, I'm in a band. Yeah, I'm in a band. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we haven't actually done anything, and you know. A year that and sounds a half. like a band. Yeah, <laughs> it's just one of those things you say. I don't think anyone who's in a band is actually producing music. Band, like, it just, it's just one of those comments, right? Yeah. Well, you can you can pipe in some of our songs with the Lil Mike Praxis editing. <gasps> yes. What's your band called? 
It's called Cash Cassettes. I'm supposed to be plugging my academic research here. Oh, you're and not. Just... <laughs> this is going to make up for the, we were going to ask about a boring fact, but not that this is boring, but this is just a good enough fact that we don't need We've to do decided that. decided that. I'm in a band. Oh. It's your boring fact. Unless you want, did you, did you practice? You practice your facts, didn't you? Yeah. <laughs> Go on then. <laughs> Go on. What's your boring fact, Christine? I'm really obsessed with nectar points. <laughs> that is really boring. I'm glad we asked. <laughs> it's so boring. Like I've got the app. I am like really aggressive about getting, you know, buying things that give me points. They've started shadow banning me. I'm positive. <laughs> Because I've gotten so many points. It was at the point where I got like £2.50 off my groceries every single week. It was great. Uh, and they were like, and she's now, getting the system. Yeah. <laughs> she now must like, be stopped. You only get 10 points if you buy like these smoked haddock cakes. And I'm like, I don't want that. So anyway, um, yeah, that's my contact. <laughs> because of course I thought of it beforehand because that's who I am as a person. <laughs> I mean, so, that's a lot. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's a lot to process i'm still processing the band what do you play in the band i sing <gasps> mm-hmm. yeah. well then I'm you like... need to record this the song, song for fuck's sake like, you have a band and you haven't recorded the song the, the song is really interesting though because um from what i gather of it like the snippets of lyrics that i found it's all the patients um writing about how great their surgeon is which is fair like he did give them you know, reconstructed faces and gave them an approximation of, you know, their before the war um, mm-hmm. appearance. Um, but it just very much plays into this whole narrative of the like God life giving surgeon mm-hmm. who is super macho and just, you know, absolutely can do anything without any repercussion and everyone okay. loves him. And ooh. so are we saying that this is basically like a, like a World War II version of Mark Sloan? Like, I've been re- I've been rewatching um, Grey's Anatomy, and he is just basically which like, one is, which one is more McSteamy? Oh, or a plastic yes. surgeon. Yes, or yes. or McDreamy. When later on, sorry, we're 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 both still no, up I to love date it. with Grey's Anatomy because we're the worst guys. But you know when he goes like fucking psycho and like just starts chopping into people's brains and shit. And um, then he just goes a bit cavalier and like gets speeding tickets because he thinks he's invincible. Yes, that's very, I mean, that's a lot of the surgical stereotype, right? But in a lot of the research that I'm doing, it plays out, <laughs> you know? Mm, okay. I mean, God this, complex. One of the surgeons. Devastatingly handsome. Every yeah, single one. I mean, <laughs> they were. <laughs> no, no, I've been, I have been conditioned by all forms of medical drama to understand that if I have ever got any serious medical issue, I will be attended to by an incredibly hot doctor. No. And if I won't be, I, I will leave the hospital immediately. A hot doctor will have just come fresh from having sex in the on-call room. Like, that's how it works, That's right? what I want. That's what I want from my physician, okay? <laughs> well, so two of, the, two of the surgeons that I work on, both of them were bald and had, like, really brown glasses and were from New Zealand. Doesn't mean they can't be sexy. Um, but one of them, they all called him God on the on the surgical ward. He was known as the boss or God. So that's, you know, mm-hmm. nothing weird or complex giving. No, no, fine, <laughs> fine, fine, absolutely legit. Um, 
And the other one was the bald and benevolent. Oh, that is awful. That's awful. I, I snuck that into an introduction of an article I'm writing right now, and I'm super psyched about it. That's so good. The bald and benevolent. So, like, so surgeons are probably the only people that are worse than academics then. <laughs> well, and because surgeons try to be academics so often. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's this whole, um, you know, subgenre of, medical practitioners and surgeons like either writing their own history or writing retrospectively diagnostic articles Mm -hmm. and you know there's been a lot in medical humanities research about how like that doesn't work yeah you can't do that Mm -hmm. and you know they'll do it for art pieces uh for in literature Mm -hmm. in you know or just for historic figures and it's like you know you're kind of breaking your hippocratic oath by not like actually observing and examining and mm-hmm. you know physically diagnosing these people but there's this whole thing with you know i've read so many surgeons versions of surgical history mm-hmm. and i feel like at the beginning of my phd i was like this is what happened this is great i've got all of it in front of me you know they all did this already and i just have to stitch it all together great and the more i've gone into it i'm like you guys are wrong that's <laughs> great I mean that's what you're not god I am you guys are the fucking worst I control the narrative now the blonde and benevolent <laughs> I have the god complex not you uh yeah so um they skimmed over some of the less savory things like mm-hmm. the calling you know them being called god and like just the rampant misogyny and sexism in the surgical wards uh there's some fun stories the bald and benevolent guy mm-hmm. i just read the story about how he went on a lecture tour to the states and in this lecture of dental students he called up this particularly pretty woman in a red summer dress right this was 1941 called her up and sat her on the stage and then proceeded to hike up her skirt and demonstrate like a, a leg flap on her bare legs in front of the whole lecture hall and everyone apparently was just like cracking up everyone was like oh he's such a lad you know it's such a good time he's such a good lecture and i'm reading this thinking like oh my god what is a leg flap um it's a flap made from part of the leg okay so he didn't like because i'm like no, he didn't carve into her leg. Okay, good. I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> oh my God. No. Sorry. I was just like, what absolute boss? <laughs> what? That was misleading, and I see that now. But yeah. <laughs> Okay, okay. But yeah, how it would. I mean, still not good. I'm not saying there's still not, you know, there aren't issues here. But... Yeah, he like used his hand and her skirt to just like hike it up to her thigh and, you know. I mean, this seems like the perfect time to ask you for your Tinder bio. Mm-hmm. Ah, yeah. Good, sexy, sexy surgical times. Mm. Um, so, sexy and problematic surgical times. So, my academic Tinder bio is a nice little uh, Titanic reference, and it is draw me like one of your danglums. Um, because <laughs> a danglum is not you know oh no we know we know we know what a tangulum is i don't very well no, I've, I've got no idea i, I <laughs> <laughs> squidith paltrow's got a new candle called the smell of my dangulum 
so a danglum is this this kind of very prominent object bodily object uh, in 20th century plastic surgery um that kind of takes on mythic proportions but it's used all the time from the first world war onward really and it is a tube made out of your own flesh um that is used to reconstruct body parts so it's you know mm -hmm. using re reduce reuse recycle right it's using your own <laughs> body parts to reconstruct like a nose or an ear mm -hmm. mostly um, i'm just giggling because it's reminding me of like a flashlight but on your face <laughs> <laughs> i'm sorry it's very flashy and very tubular and very phallic yeah for sure um and so lots of times and it, the tech, technical name for it is a tube pedicle right but some of the patients called it a danglum. Um, and this is, you know, relates to my research in humor. You know, they, they gave it these kind of infant, uh, not infant names, uh, like infantilizing names mm -hmm. or like made jokes about it to lessen the kind of really scary side of it or harmful yeah. side of it or stigmatizing side of it. So they called it danglums. They'd be these tubes of flesh that came often from like the inner thigh, um, sometimes back of the head if you needed hair, um, or like the chest. And then they would, you'd make the tube of flesh, and each end was connected to your body still, so that the it was still the, like blood going through it mm. exactly. And then they would waltz it up your body <laughs> every couple of weeks. They'd un or they'd detach one end of it and move it closer to the part of your body that needed reconstruction. Why wouldn't they just do it at one fell swoop? Something about something about the blood, blood flow and like making sure that it remained viable. So they had to just like make sure that it was viable every step of the way. And then eventually it would get up to your, like around your clavicle. And if you were getting your nose reconstructed, they'd attach it here and you'd have to stay for a couple of weeks with your nose attached to your shoulder. Oh so you my gosh. be really traumatizing for the men and women that this was on, right? Mm -hmm. It's like, that's a whole other appendage that, you know, it's really kind of alien to your, yeah. your body is supposed to look like. Um, and so they called them dangalums and, you know, the, there are lots of jokes and photos and drawings um, about these two pedicles. Like the surgeons, I think, played into it a lot where, um, you know, if a tube pedicle failed, if it was no longer viable, they would hold a funeral for it and like name it and like do a whole song and dance about it. This is my danglum, Bob. <laughs> yeah, There's, I've got this one of my surgical artists that I work on. Um, she's got like a christening of a tube pedicle, and she names him Angus on like fourteenth of January, two forty-three p.m. He was christened Angus. Very weird. <laughs> There's something interesting about that because, like, I've, you know, I've had friends who've had like medical procedures and stuff. Like, I mean, people who've had um, like like big cysts, right? In and they've named them. Is this like oh, a thing? Yeah. Have been, people just like naming bits that grow in places? Yeah, I think it's to other it though, right? Yeah. Make it something other than your own body to distance yourself from this alien thing that's mm -hmm. kind of interrupting your life. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so yeah there's lots of literature and <sighs> jokes and things about tube pedicles and my <laughs> god I look, I look at so many danglums 
is that the main way of reconstructing a nose like in the sort of world war in II this period? period yeah like walking yeah. a dangling up, up your body and they had Waltzen. sorry sorry I, I took the romance out of it um <laughs> <Waltz-in-ma-dang-lum>. Waltz-in-ma-dang-lum. <laughs> so would like the reconstructing of the nose via the the dangulum is that like one of the more common procedures during this period like what is the kind of time frame that you work on i work primarily on the second world war um so my my thesis was on it's specifically focused on one surgical artist named Dickie Orpin, who worked from 1942 to 1945. So my thesis just really picked apart all of her drawings and cartoons and weird surgical visual culture, hmm. um, which of course led into the surgeons and other surgical artists and photographers and that whole milieu. But um of course, her work and the work of the surgeons also relates back to the First World War. Um, and probably, you know, whenever I tell people that I work on medical art, they always go, oh, Henry Tonks, because he's the one that, like, people have actually heard of. Um, and he did facial injury pastels uh, during the First World War that showed, like, before surgery and after surgery. Um, and, you know, with those, of course, they're really interesting to art historians because pastels are a really soft, delicate fragile medium mm-hmm. um, that's often associated with like femininity and domestic scenes and that kind of thing. And then he just used them to show horrific like trench warfare injury. Um, and so the artists that I work on actually, or that my thesis focused on uh, studied under him. So there's like a direct lineage uh, from the first world war mm-hmm. to her. Um, and yeah, plastic surgeons were just obsessed with art and visual representations mm-hmm. um, because in addition to them all thinking, uh, not them all, that's a generalization, but a lot of them, you know, <laughs> thinking that they were God or, you know, the shit, basically, um, they also fancied themselves artists. Um, and so a lot of them were amateur sculptors or painters uh or draftsmen, and I mean, I I interviewed one plastic surgeon who talked about how like he would always joke with his patients that like he would want to hang them up on the wall, like because you know they're his artwork. Why are uh, plastic surgeons so fucking creepy? The worst. <laughs> I'm now understanding more and more why surgeons are normally like I don't know the villain or like the, the key suspect as a mass murderer. Like, oh my god, there are so many. Also, there's some great academic articles about like horror films and plastic surgery. Mm-hmm. Oh my god, there's this movie, <laughs> and I've never watched any of them, but I've read all of these articles. <laughs> And, you know, a lot of them have to do with, like, the face transplant mm-hmm. um, as something that... We've like, all seen Face Off. It's okay. <laughs> I haven't. That's you haven't film. seen Face Off? Oh, my no. God. It's not a horror film. It's the best film of all that time, That is a though. failing. Oh, that's an <laughs> yeah, plastic surgery. I know. I know. So I actually good. just read this book. I read. I just read this book by um, Sharona Pearl called Face On, and it's about the ethics of the face transplant. And the first paragraph is, you know, something like, 
Every academic has that one embarrassing thing that they've never read or watched. I've never seen Face Off. And her book is titled Face On. And it's like... I think mean, that's embarrassing, though. I think it's great of her to admit yeah, that. No, but she's kind of, that's turning into a flex. Like, I that, know. Is, that is like... As a Victorian, it's to be like, mm, but I've never read Middle March, which actually I have never finished Middle March. Uh, <laughs> but you know, that shit's long. It's fine. My partner is reading it right now, and I keep telling him, I'm like, you can put, it, you don't have to, you don't have to read it. You can, you can like put it down and finish or and not finish it. And he's like, I'm a doer. Fucking do it. And yeah. Yeah. No. Um. There's also oh, I, was, oh, I was thinking about when you're talking about face off. Oh, yeah. <laughs> ah, there's a there's an article in Doyle's like short story. I don't know if you know it, where like um he wants to get revenge on the surgeon. Um, I think is the wife. No, the wife is having an affair or something. And um, and I'm also probably butchering this, but basically, um, he says that the wife has had some some issue and that she needs to have like her nose chopped off or her face done and he switches the patient and so the surgeon ends up operating and um and working on the wife or the wife gets like kind of punished by a surgery and it's just Ooh. really fucked up there's a i mean there's a lot of because it's like a such a bodily violation um you know surgery is so kind of violent in the way that it's enacted like it has to be because that's how it works I feel like it's really I mean just like in cultural imagination in pop culture it's just become it's it's such an easy vehicle for that kind of gross out uh horror or gross out humor (laughs) (laughs) um have you seen Tusk sorry again derailing Oh, Tusk is a masterpiece. I've only watched it like via really worried. <laughs> clips so on YouTube. So basically, I'm even more worried now. The premise <laughs> is it's so fucking batshit. I think it's Canadian. I can't remember. The premise is this wanky guy goes up to stay with this like old eccentric. Mm. Like, I think he's a writer, and um, he. <laughs> This guy is obsessed. Oh my god, it's about a podcaster. He's a podcaster. Oh, he's a podcaster. Perfect, perfect. Um, So, you know, this is take this as the warning. Um, And he... (laughs) This guy's obsessed with, like, being saved by a walrus someday. So he decides that he's going to kidnap the podcaster and slowly turn him into a walrus um, by, like, making him only, only eat fish and, like, by doing like various surgeries on him like over time so like he removes his legs and like and then he like sews his legs together it's like really gradual so by the time his friends realize that he's missing he think he's like this he's like kind of a human skinned walrus he's like broken his legs and stuff so that they've like got him to be in the shape of a walrus and he really believes that he is the walrus and he ends up in the zoo because no. by the time his friends find him it's like kind of Stockholm syndrome and he becomes this human walrus thing um I really recommend looking at the images <laughs> please don't I just have it I don't think I can sleep tonight <laughs> they are both hysterical but also really fucking horrific as Ferdinand Le Saucere notes a linguistic system is a series of differences of sound combined with a series of differences of ideas or in the words of the Beatles I am the Eggman they are the Eggman 
so like is is because I, I you've already kind of touched on this actually um in terms sorry, of sorry like, back to your humor. work <laughs> back to your I'm gonna try and take the offering of Tusk and reformulate it into something somehow related which is why is plastic surgery so funny um <laughs> and we're thinking here about sort of like those um terrible programs that were really like popular I mean I don't know if they're not popular still um but like you know botched celebrity plastic surgery programs or like I don't know there's like a lot of like horrible spectacle around surgery gone wrong and it's kind of turned into sort of like so there's there's like humor on that side which seems to be sort of like laughing at but it feels Mm -hmm. a little bit like humor in your work is a very different sort of register it's very different yeah I I think with like the cosmetic surgery the botched side of things, it's more like, you know, there's this idea that cosmetic surgery is undertaken for vanity or, and a, and a person chooses to do it, you know, out of no necessity or need. And, you know, it, they're just doing their own thing really um, and undertaking this risk themselves. So if it, if it gets screwed up, then that's on them. Whereas I think the stuff that I'm working on is, you know, these either, you know, these men who went, off to war and ended up being shot down in the Battle of Britain and therefore have burns, you know, on their faces, their hands and their bodies, or, you know, uh, women who were woken up by the Blitz and, you know, had their uh, faces totally, um, uh, totally burned. Sorry. (laughs) Um, I can think of another word for it. That's not the funny part. I swear. I sound terrible. Um, I swear it makes sense to talk about humor and plastic surgery. Not all, um, so the thing is, as I mentioned with the dangalums, like a lot of the patients, you know, they formed groups to kind of um, offer support to each other. Um, mm-hmm. as like this common, they had a common experience uh, where they were all operated on in the same hospital or by the same surgeon. Um, there was a group called the Giddy Pig Club, which even just by the name, <laughs> Like that in itself is showing that they're not taking it too seriously. Mm-hmm. And the guinea pig club was mostly the RAF pilots who were, you know, shot down in battle. Mm-hmm. And they were the ones who wrote that funny song about, um, you know, the surgeon who, who worked on them. Um, and so I think that humor is utilized in a couple of different ways, depending on who, who is using it. I mean, that sounds kind of obvious, but like for the patients, um, it feels more authentic and, okay to a historian looking at it back then but then the surgeons use it a lot as well Mm. um and sometimes i find it really unsettling and problematic um sometimes it feels like the patients were in on it um and then sometimes i actually think that the surgeons are using it in a kind of coercive way uh to kind of show the patients like look you can poke fun at this Mm -hmm. uh therefore you know don't try not to take this too seriously or fall into depression because depression was a big problem in these, in these wards, um, especially for the young people who thought, you know, their girlfriends or boyfriends back home were never going, you know, weren't going to honor their engagement or whatever, you know, there were some really terrible real life ramifications after, after these injuries. Um, But then sometimes I think the surgeons just really take the piss with it. Um, (laughs) I, interjection. I always find it really funny when Americans say "take the piss" because it oh, sounds God. so incorrect. I know. I'm glad you, I'm glad you said it. That was no, a very good way of doing it. I'm one of those assholes who goes back home, and people are like, "Oh my God, 
I can't believe you just said that. I, you're like pretending that you're British. I'm like, I'm really not. I swear. <laughs> I know I sound like a dick sometimes. <laughs> or when Americans um, say like, go to the loo, like, which is such I, a British one. I know. And I don't say that that much. I have stopped saying y'all as much because I'm from oh, Mexico, that's tragic. Tennessee. And that's like capital. Y'all is great. So you're from the same state as the, our Lord and Saviour, Dolly Parton. I say Lord, but actually yeah, I mean... I am. True God, oh, true God. She's wonderful. Yeah, she solved um, COVID and she's the best. Good. Have, oh, God. Have you heard of Dolly World? Dolly World? Uh, yes. Oh, yes. It's on my bucket okay. list. Uh, I fucking have I listened to the Have I listened cool. to the podcast about it? Yes. yes. <laughs> I've never actually been there, but... It's in Gatlinburg, which is like the kitschest, most touristy town in East Tennessee. It's up in the mountains, like literally the whole, like what the like the high street basically equivalent is like those old timey photos that you do mm-hmm. in sepia. And like what you dress up as a sheriff or like fried dough and um, like every other gross dream. American fried <laughs> thing. That you can have and it's it's just the most ridiculous place everything is like fake log cabins and like statues of bears with like banjos it's crazy <laughs> this sounds incredible like yeah, I'm, I'm in anything that's tacky or kitsch i'm i'm there like <laughs> I love Tennessee. It. it's great like um like is tacky or kitsch in any way associated to um medical visual yeah, so this goes back to what i was saying sorry <laughs> No, no, no. That's perfect segue back to when the surgeons take it too far. Um, They, so there's this textbook. It's actually like a, well, it's like a textbook, but it's also kind of a jokey memoir by one Mm -hmm. of the surgeons, which is very strange combo, obviously. (laughs) Yeah. um, And it's published in 1957 and it's got like all these little cartoons running through it. It's, like they've cut into some of the photographs of patients and like swapped around noses and just like totally, you know, doing whatever the hell they want with it. But there's this one image that I find fascinating. And it's a, it's a combination tube pedicle and uh, skin flap. Uh, so half tube, half flap. <laughs> um, not that that really matters. Oh my God. Or it's like, our duo in the podcast. I can be tube, you can be flap, no? <laughs> I fucking knew you were going to say I can be flap. You're such a tube. <laughs> and tube. This, flap. this combination tube flap is called a marsupial flap, meaning okay. that it's a pouch. Oh, because it's like a pouch. Yeah. Okay, yeah. It's a pouch. <laughs> Sorry, I'm just... Louise, that little noise that you just made, it's really great. I was just trying to laugh and (laughs) talk at the same time, and it just went, eh. (laughs) (laughs) Marsupial pouch, go. This is is why plastic surgery is funny, though, because they make it purposefully, right? So it's called a marsupial pouch in the first place, which, like, they didn't have to call it that. Um, And in this textbook, they've actually cut out a photo of a surgeon in a white coat and stuck it in the flap that's on a patient. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so he's become like the little baby Joey in this marsupial mm-hmm. pouch that is literally a tube and pouch of skin attached to a real person's abdomen. <laughs> and it's just like I these, love it. these guys are so bizarre. 
Which is, I just you see why. Can you imagine going to a house party with a surgeon? I feel like it'd be fucking wild. Oh, oh they then they were like the pranks that they played, the shit that they pulled. It's just <laughs> the money and they so, make. <laughs> the reason I like went down this path though is because the surgical artist that I wrote my thesis on, um, Dicky she made all of these cartoons like making fun of the surgeons around her the anesthetist the uh you know her colleagues the nurses and I was like why does she think that she can do this like where did this come from Mm -hmm. and then I started doing some more research and I was like oh it's because that was just like the vibe (laughs) (laughs) that's the vibe was just tube flap (laughs) (laughs) tube flap is vibe I think that's our new bio on Twitter. Uh, <laughs> um, but I was thinking as well, like, because Dickie, that's the nickname, obviously it's female that are getting that space. Yeah. So what, what's the sort of gender politics going on there? Because that must have been yeah. really quite subversive. Really interesting. Um, so actually in this time, a lot of the surgical artists were women. Um, one of the things that I argue is that surgical illustration especially in plastic surgery, was a space that women could enter this very, very macho, very misog- or often misogynistic um, I think you're space. allowed to say very, having just described fucking I know, I know. Fat. It's just, yeah. Yeah. I'm like, ooh, academic, um, eh. like, reflex. No, it's all, it's all misogyny. <laughs> 100%, all the time. Anyway, um, and so it was a way that they could, like, learn real Surge, uh, contribute real surgical knowledge not only visually but actually like in the like uh, in the actual surgeries so mm-hmm. like, the artists that I write about like there are examples where I think that they have actually invented a new way of skin of grafting skin mm-hmm. and like they've written out the steps and it's different from anything that the surgeons have done and they've named it after themselves and I'm like look she knew what she was talking about like the empirical training that they went through was actually often more than a lot of the trainee surgeons who were, you know, 99% male, you know, they, they observed more surgeon, more surgeries than they did, than the trainee surgeons did. Um, so it's a really interesting role that was still kind of being figured out in this period um, because the Medical Artists Association of Britain uh, didn't, wasn't founded until 1949. So there really wasn't a way, there really wasn't like a, um, what is the word that I'm the standardization of uh, medical illustration training. So they really could just do whatever they wanted. So they uh, drew these cartoons and, you know, if they're drawing a skin flap or a tube pedicle, they also could do weird little marginalia around it or like Mm -hmm. notes to their colleagues, um, like next to somebody whose face is being reconstructed. So it's this really strange, like liminal zone of, humor and like the most serious thing that you can imagine which Mm -hmm. is giving somebody their facial functionality back and then you know these artists and surgeons also having to cope with their own possible secondary trauma and doing that a lot of the time through humor um and you know a lot of the men on the wards also coped it coped it um (laughs) A lot of the men on the wards also coped by, you know, punching down at the nurses or at the female surgical illustrators. Um, And so uh, there's this one story about, you know, this uh, 
this woman, uh, the surgical illustrator who she was also a VAD, a volunteer aid detachment nurse. And, you know, she would often get asked by these patients who were, you know, sitting on the ward for weeks on end, waiting for their tube pedicles to be ready to be reconfigured. You know, they'd ask, oh, does the VAD on your cap stand for voluntary after dark or virgins absolutely <laughs> desperate? And oh, she <laughs> neither but you know the <laughs> would hire what they thought were the prettiest and you know mm-hmm. most agreeable nurses because part of the healing process according to these surgeons was giving these men back their like sexual virility and feeling like they were men again um which is a really there's lots of interesting gender politics in there as you said Louise, and mm-hmm. um, there's just a lot uh, and, you know, Dickie as well, uh, there's this really interesting collection of drawings where she actually draws herself in an alter ego as a male orderly. Um, okay. So there's this, I'm still trying to figure out exactly, I just gave a conference paper on this, and I'm still trying to figure out exactly what that gender bending means in the context of the, you know, gendered atmosphere of the mm-hmm. surgical board. You know, is she trying to align herself with her, you know, the male surgeons and anesthetists and those at the upper end of the surgical or hospital hierarchy, or by portraying herself as an orderly, is she showing that, you know, she's actually at the bottom of the hierarchy? It's a, it's really interesting. And there's so much more material on this than, than you might think, you know, medical illustration isn't just showing the steps of a surgery or Mm -hmm. um, the effect of repair. Um, it's also super fun. <laughs> <laughs> Yay. Yay. <laughs> As a precariously employed ACR. I think um I think the one thing I was thinking about as well, and I know it's something that you've um been thinking about too, is like what is it to sort of look at these artifacts now? Like mm. how should we be reacting to this is there like is there a way um that quote unquote we should react to sort of gross pictures or well not gross pictures yeah. necessarily but... <laughs> no it's okay I mean it's really tricky um because on one end of things like if the patients are participating in this humor mm-hmm. then in a way you're not really authentically representing their experience if you're not also showing that side of things you know if you're not showing the the funny or the human or the you know just off the wall you know out of fear of not being of not being respectful Mm -hmm. um but then there's also like the really difficult side of things especially with photographs of when do you show this material when you're writing about it and mm-hmm. how often do you share it and how do you talk about it? Because with the illustration aspect of it, like, is there like, what's the kind of ethics of consent within that? Because yeah, really <laughs> tricky. Um, so it's, I have no patient records. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know if they fully consented to the illustrations or the photograph. Mm-hmm. I don't know what the procedure was. I'm still trying to figure that out. Um, but there is, you know, there are a lot of 
photography scholars especially um, working on like the emotions and ethics that are embodied in medical imagery. Mm. Um, like Beatrice Pichel um, is a is a really excellent person who's writing about this right now. Um, and I've thought a lot about this where, you know, even some of the images that I use in my thesis, I'm not sure that I would use now if I published it as a book mm -hmm. um, because I feel like it's a constant negotiation of, okay, how comfortable do I feel with this? And, you know, I feel a lot of empathy uh, for these patients through these images. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, there is that, that weird distinction between photography and drawing where drawing isn't as immediately recognizable and it's not as visceral. Um, and so those feel really much more okay to kind of um, display and write about mm -hmm. and publish, but the photographs are just so personal and um, they can be really traumatic for the researcher as well. Um, right. And that's something that I, that I write about. And a lot more people are writing about that as well. Like the, the emotional labor of the historian going into these difficult archives, mm -hmm. um, you know, not only of medicine, but also, well, I mean, even more so, you know, historians who work on sexual violence or mm -hmm. genocide, like, uh, you know, we can't just be these totally omniscient, objective people who write about how history got from A to B, you know, mm -hmm. I think it's really productive to write about our own emotional responses to these things. Yeah, for um, sure. And that's kind of something that I'm uh, working on right now as well. Because um, the first time that I went into the photography archive um, that I work on, I had to like, I didn't know what I was getting myself into with these photographs of facial injury. Mm. And I had been working on the drawings for so long that I thought I was mm. totally desensitized. I was like, I am super chill. I'm the morbid art historian. You know, I can do this, whatever. And it ended up being really affecting. Um, and I had to like walk away after about 10 minutes in the archive. And the archivist, when I like came back with my boxes, it was like, okay, I've got to take a break and like actually prepare myself for this mm -hmm. next time. But yeah, I totally had the same thing. You know, the first time that I looked at these, I just had to go home and watch kitten videos. <laughs> I was like, oh God, that's not really what I want to do. Like I- Equally, you could have said. <laughs> <laughs> give the girl a heads up come on I know I know I was like well I can see how that would be helpful but like I you know I after that I really wanted to unpack that experience mm -hmm. and kind of figure out what that meant for these as like affective objects and what that means for the process of you know medical archive research and mm -hmm. yeah kitten videos can be helpful for that sometimes <laughs> Um, but that's why I like, I want to write that into my research. Mm -hmm. well, I think it's such an important element, right? The idea increasingly that we're just supposed to be these objective observers of everything. I think there's just a fucking nonsense and really actually patriarchal as fuck and <laughs> colonial and stupid. And yeah, I don't know this, you know, I've been thinking about sort of uh, like going back to my, my fave Donna Haraway, right. And the kind of situated knowledge that she talks about in terms of scientific, um, 
inquiry where supposedly the scientific observer has to be detached has to have this godlike persona right that we Mm -hmm. kind of are elevated above that and if you know taking away the joking bit about academics we also try and elevate ourselves above the subject material that we study to give ourselves a sense of this idea of like objective criticality and therefore to legitimize our readings yeah i think it's really dangerous because it completely removes us from exactly that kind of field of affect and the fact that we're Mm -hmm. humans the things that we're studying is the fucking humanities (laughs) um so it's just a kind of like i don't know we should all be more kitten feely in our research. That's my that's my that's my soapbox. Yeah. I've always been kitten feely. I love cats. You've always been kitten feely. <laughs> but it's the same thing. Like it's um I think it's happening all over the place in the humanities, but working in neurodiversity studies is kind of one of the things that we think about it because mm-hmm. um, you know, taking the self out of the research is kind of more difficult. Um than your construction of self is differentiated by a neurodivergence so like there's a lot of work in university studies about you know putting people into the narrative um using narrative as a rhetorical yeah. tool um and sort of thinking about how we disseminate knowledge and shit like mm-hmm. i just had to i felt like i was being too academic then so i just had to qualify it with an and shit um because i was like <laughs> oh my god i, I sound too professional down. what the fuck um <laughs> but I, I sound too knowledgeable and like I know what I do with my work. Oh my <laughs> this is not the vibe of praxis. No, <laughs> absolutely not. No, I love it. Um, well, I mean, even I forget why I thought of this while you were talking, Alex. <laughs> but also dealing with writing about humor mm. and having to assume that academic voice and like explain the joke <laughs> can be <laughs> kind yeah, of cringy. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like I went I went to a humor conference a couple of years ago and we were all just like, it kind of, you know, no one had laughed in the whole first <laughs> panel because you have to, I mean, you're like, and this is why this joke is funny in the context mm-hmm. of World War II. It's kind of like a yawn, like. <laughs> yeah. Snore. <laughs> sometimes. But you have to do it, you know? <laughs> like, not to say that you're not funny, but sometimes when I think particularly when his proper historians that work on humor are often the driest people you've ever met. Like, <laughs> like especially I, if it's like prior to the 20th century, like, Oh my God. I will say world war two humor historians are so much fun. Oh my God. <laughs> like, great time. Like margaritas galore. It's great. Oh my God. Uh, that'd be so good. Yeah. Remember, remember. <laughs> I mean, for the seventeenth, it's happening. Uh, Alex, we're gonna we're gonna, have, we're gonna hug it out. No, I don't. We, we, should, we don't. We don't have a huggy relationship. No, even before we could touch, it was never a thing. No, it was weird. <laughs> because you know I'm all about to lose. About to lose. No, guitar. How many of our questions had you prepped for in the shower? Cover it. I want to talk about sexist surgeons. I wanted to talk about danglums, but we knew that would happen. Um, I think danglums were given. I did. I did think that you guys, because of you know the morbid art history blog or whatever. I did. I was like, oh, what if they asked me what the most morbid thing I've ever experienced would be? And I had an answer for that. Go for it. Give it. Give do, it. Do you want me to ask you the question? Yes. Do it. Set her up. Here we go. So. Okay. We're, we've been told that you work on the uh, morbid art history blog. So I was wondering, what is the most morbid piece of art that you've ever worked on? 
oh, that wasn't the question. Oh, was it not? That's the most mob. No, Louise has fucked it up. <clears throat> Let me try. Okay. But, I but, hear but, that you but, work we'll on them. It. We'll keep Louise, all this in. Louise, you're am, in I, am I the worst guest you've ever had? No, in fact, yeah. we've had much worse. Oh, yes. <laughs> there's, there's some episodes that are still in the vault <laughs> for the reasons. Vault, <laughs> Mostly to do with content. Okay. <laughs> Not quality. Okay, no, here we go. Mm-hmm. Ah, oh, Christy, you work on <laughs> the Morbid Art History blog. How wonderful. What's the most morbid thing that ever happened to you? Oh, wow. What a really just unexpected and wonderfully uh, personal question, question that I don't have an answer for. You know, um, <laughs> you know, Lemony Snicket the author mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. of unfortunate events yeah, yeah. right yeah not where we expected this to go but promise i'm so, I'm, I'm vibing i'm good so I'm here. i loved lemony snicket as a kid um and when i was in third grade in san francisco uh another kid in my in my middle school won uh from some i don't know from some contest uh to get lemony snicket to come and speak at our school and so he came and he was like the weirdest guy I've ever seen in the world. He, he pretended that he wasn't actually Lemony Snicket. He was like, oh, I'm actually Lemony Snicket's first cousin. Lemony Snicket got bit by a dung beetle at a picnic. So I'm replacing him. This is very strange. Excellent. Uh-huh. Um, and it, at yeah. the end, I don't remember anything from his talk except for that. And then the book signing, which is at the end, uh, we could all go up and get our book signed. And I, I brought... Um, my favorite, which was the third one, the wide window, I think, mm-hmm. um, brought that up, had him sign it. And I didn't really look at it. And then I got home and I showed my mom and she was pissed because Lemony Snicket wrote in my, in my book to a future orphan, love Lemony Snicket. <gasps> <laughs> what a fucking baller. <laughs> and my mom was like, how dare he? Like how many other kids to be right? In. like great you know seven <laughs> years old by the way both of your parents are gonna die eventually like the characters in my book <laughs> yeah i'd say that's pretty friggin morbid um uh, this reminds me and my mother listens so i'm sorry Faye. maybe skip the next 15 seconds uh 30 seconds um so we had this horrible um period where um my maternal and paternal grandmother died within three days of one another and my father's way of dealing with this when my mother was out of earshot because she was in you know very very upset and my my dad was also upset but he deals with things through humor like we've been discussing Mm -hmm. and he just kept turning around and being well it's not every day you become an orphan and being like Oliver Oliver is necessary exactly but yeah the the oliver twist references were not maybe warranted but Ah. it's fine i feel like we should just end it by all agreeing that in the end laughter is the best medicine yeah Uh, that That that, no it just came out of my head right now i was really proud what do you think i'm very impressed and yes yes (laughs) amazing Despite Francis Fukuyama's best efforts, history be like. Guess who's back? Back, back, back again. So tell us about your podcast to be. Uh, yeah, so, um, well, we haven't started it, but, 
But we have a name and we have some funding. So now, oh, oh my God, you actually have money behind it? This yes, is a, no, this it, is too much. It paid for my snowball microphone. Oh, nice. Which is, we can't use right now because it's, <laughs> which isn't working. So <laughs> what funding it is. What's the name? What's the name? What's the topic? What's the, it's going to be called Drawing Blood. Um, and it's going to be, it's going to be with uh, Emma Merkling, who is a fellow weird art historian. She works on 19th century, like science and the occult. Mm. Um, and yeah, so it's going to be visual culture and art as it relates to medicine, science, the occult, the weird, vampires, etc. Cool, Amazing. great Amazing. title I mean, as well. Yeah. yeah, I wish I could. Um, I wish I could take some credit for that. I came up with some really horrific pin. Oh my god! Um, please tell us now. I can't. I wish, as I was saying, <laughs> that, you're going to ask me for an example, and I cannot. I. I, I was uh, texting Emma and we were trying to think of a think of a title and I sent her a screenshot of what I was Googling, um, you know, to try to, to get the creative juices flowing. We've all been to thesaurus.com. It's fine. And, yeah. you know, and I, I had just Googled most famous paintings and I told her, <laughs> I'm such a good art historian. And then she, she texted me back a screenshot. She had Googled the exact same thing. <laughs> None of them gave us any good puns, so uh, drawing blood it is. I think that's another thing that we can, because it'll be after your episode goes out, so we can claim that as another output that we did. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's our favourite game, is taking credit for our guests. No, I'm and, expecting I'm expecting a book contract out of this. Yeah, uh, it, yeah it, happens. it happens, it happens. <laughs> Have you got a book to go? Uh, you will <laughs> soon. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's still all my practice promise. <laughs> those, those people who just say, oh yeah, the book writes itself. I'm expecting this podcast to, yeah. to write my book. You can follow Christine on Twitter at Slobogin, that's S-L-O-B-O-G-I-N, and check out her work on Morbid Art History, all one word, dot wordpress.com. And of course, keep an eye out for Drawing Blood. We've been Long My Praxis. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget, a five-star output deserves five-star reviews. No reviewer two comments, please. Shout out to our biggest fan and most consistent listener, my mother, Faye. You can get in touch with us by emailing longmypraxis at gmail.com or finding us on Twitter at longmypraxis. Today's episode was brought to you by the letter D for Danglum. And the number... September 1st, 1939. Our shape this week is... Flap Tube. Remember to tell your friends with apologies for a cross-posting. Bye!